0: You know, it's an interesting thing, and we're in the middle of this, but how we tend to view change. I want you to think about this with me. On the one hand, we say, the only thing for certain is what? Yeah, you know, we say that, and then, gosh, you know, I don't know, something else happens. And next thing you know, we hear ourselves say, you know, some things never what? Yeah, well, well, I thought everything. uh." And then, you know, we might get here and go, I'm going to tell you something. The more things change, the more they stay the... Which is it? (laughs) You're confusing me. Well, here's what we know, okay? Maturity says things always change. And there are some things that never change. And we hold those tensions. This is what we teach our kids. Not to eliminate any of that, but to hold it and grow in it. And God uses all of it for our good and His glory. Uh, speaking of those tensions, I want you to know on the uh, 12th and 13th, so not next week, but the week after, Rob Sweet and I will be here. And one of the things we want to just sit with you and, and do is just say, look, here's some things that never change, that will not change in fellowship. And then we want to say, and here, here not, not that we got these changes to tell you, so don't over, you know, I don't want to oversell this, but we al- we also want to sit with you and say, and here's a process, okay? Here's a process that we're all going to be in that will help us re-envision our mission and values such that, such that we are, are always engaging with the unchanging truth and ever-changing culture. How much has the culture changed in the last 20 years in your world? A ton. This never changes. How we engage that changing culture can adapt. and We just want to dream together and we'll talk a little bit about that with you on, uh, on that weekend. One thing, one thing that is not changing, and I want you to know this, is our <clears throat> submission to the authority of the inerrant, authoritative Word of God, and that we put ourselves under uh, this book, 66 books of the Bible. And uh, one of the ways we do that, and this is not going to change, is, uh, is through expository teaching, wherein we take the bible and primarily on weekends what we're going to do is go through verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, books of the bible. That's what we do. Why do we do that? Cuz we believe that uh, a maturing christian needs to understand the whole counsel of God and you know, you can teach it other ways, but this is the way we choose to teach it because for us we believe it's the best way for the body to receive the whole counsel of God in a sense You know, when you teach it this way, you got to eat your vegetables and not just the dessert. And we get it all in that way. Y'all, we've always done that. That's never going to change. And I'm going to ask you to do it right now as you take your Bibles and we open them to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're in verses 1 through 20. Mark 15, 1 through 20. There's an African proverb that says, whatever a man is filled with will spill out when you bump him. Whatever a man is filled with will spill out when you bump him. What spills out of you uh, when life bumps you? When, uh, when you don't get the service that you expected at a restaurant, maybe at a retail store, or at a Ticket counter at the airport. What, what spills out? I'm one of those. I can't tell you. I have a witness on the front row, my daughter, who's absolutely been embarrassed by me when I, something didn't go the way I wanted, and, and I let them know. You know I, what, what spilled out of me was what was in me. Have you ever tried to straighten out your mobile phone, internet bill, change services? <laughs> in person or on phone? What spills out of you? Um, How about the bump of a medical diagnosis you didn't expect or a bill you can't pay? How about the bump of a promise someone made you and they're not keeping their promise? Or the bump of a relationship that you can't fix? How about the bump of a no thank you when you thought you had the job? Or the ultimate bump, death. Anyone ever run into death on your timetable like, this is a convenient time for this or this? No. But what spills out of you when we're bumped that way? What spills out of us when life bumps us is what fills us, which leads me to believe, and I think Scripture would affirm this, our responses to life are a more accurate reflection of our hearts than our activities in life. Let me say it another way, Uh, our responses when we don't get what we want, we don't get what we hope for, or we don't get what we think is right, our responses to those things are a more accurate reflection of our heart, what's in us, than when life is just going along as we expect it to go. The disciples are being bumped by life in ways they never envisioned. Y'all, this is the opening of Good Friday. This is where we are. We won't get through the whole day. This is the day of the Savior's death. The disciples are experiencing bumps and bruises, quite frankly, that they had not hoped for. And sure enough, sure enough, what spills out of them is exactly what has been filling them all along. What, what, what happens when these things strike them? Well... They scatter, they desert, they deny Jesus in his hour of greatest need and leave him alone. Been there the whole time. It's been there the whole time. Now, Jesus Christ himself will be bumped by the forces of this world in a way he has never experienced. And I'm going to tell you something. What comes out of Jesus is exactly what fills Jesus and has been filling Jesus and will fill Jesus for all eternity. And may I say what spills out of him is the answer to our greatest need in life. Aaron mentioned us, all of us sit here with struggles and issues. And I don't want to oversimplify this, but I also don't want to under-biblical it. Jesus is the answer. And what spills out of him is also the fulfillment of our deepest need hope. It's what spills out of him. It's what we need. It's what we long for. Now, we're going to go through this passage. It's very familiar to us. You know, it's Good Friday. We read this a lot. Every year we're going through this, but I want to take it in three parts as we cover these verses. Jesus before Pilate, then Jesus before the crowds, and finally, Jesus before the soldiers. And we're, going to, we're just going to say, what happened? And then in the back end, I want to say, well, oh my goodness, what does this mean for us? Okay? So let's take it three parts. Jesus before Pilate, one through five. Jesus before the crowd, six, excuse me, through 15. And then Jesus before the soldiers, 16 to 21. Follow along in your Bibles as I read God's word to you and to me this Lord's day. Chapter 15 of Mark, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Literally, that word harshly is uh, more and more. So they, so they started saying more and more. No, no, more and more and more and more and more. They bring these charges against him. Verse 4, then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many, see these more and more, how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. As this day begins and the sun is rising on Good Friday, Jesus has endured an all-night illegal trial. See, Jewish law forbid holding a trial at night, the council, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, this is, for Israel, their supreme court. Their, literally, their supreme court. Now, do you think that they know we're not supposed to have a trial at night? Do you think they know? Yes, absolutely they know. And yet, they have this trial. They charge Jesus with blasphemy, profaning God when Jesus said, yes, I'm the Son of God, and it deserves death. Now, Of course they know this. And so what happens when the sun finally pops up on the horizon? They hold a consultation. Here's how we get around the all-night trial. Everybody get back together again for a moment because the sun's up. And now they're past the illegal trial in their eyes. But they've got another problem. They've condemned Jesus to death. And under Roman occupation, Israel had no power to carry out capital punishment. So while it was a crime deserving death, according to their law, they couldn't kill him. It would have to be Rome that would take Jesus' life. Here's a the problem. They've charged him with blasphemy. That's a religious issue. If they, if they go, to, go to Pilate and say he's blasphemy, he's going to say, that's it's your problem. And so in the consultation, guess what they do? They change the charge. And they say, no, we will charge him with treason. Why treason? Treason is a crime against the state. And Jesus has said, you know, or you will see it, the reason we know it is that Pilate's first question, okay, first question is not, are you guilty of blasphemy? That's not the question, is it? What's the question Pilate asks? Are you the king of the Jews? See, they changed the charge. If Jesus is a king, Pilate's got a problem, Because there's only one king, ruler, sovereign. That's Caesar, you see. And so the the Jewish leaders think, we got him. We got him. But Jesus gives this weird answer, doesn't he? Uh, In the English text in our New American Standards, when there's italicized words, that means those words aren't actually in the Greek text. And so when I read verse 2, there's only two words that are not italicized at the end in his answer, and it's these words, you say. And sure enough, when you read the Greek text, it says, Lego. Ooh, let go? You say. That's all Jesus says. Are you the king of the Jews? Who let go? You say. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. We see it in other contexts in the other Gospels when they describe it. Jesus says, yes. The answer is yes. You said it. Yes. But it also leaves room, doesn't it? It also raises a question and leaves room for... For, for, for Pilate even to wonder and Jesus to say, you know, the kingdom that you're talking about, there's not the kingdom that they're talking about. And I'm going to get to that at the very end because I think this is important for us when we apply it. it kind of leaves room for interpretation. Yes, and well, something else is going on here. Maybe we're talking about a different kingdom. I want you to know the contrast Mark gives us is significant. and We'll see two, at least two of these contrasts as we go through the text. Um, note the religious leaders this contrast the religious leaders, they have a waterfall of words going. I mean, when, when, when they think he's slipping out of the net, they go Grr-sh. just all these words Grr-sh. he did this, he did this, and it's going, going, and it's a contrast with Jesus who's over here doing what? Nothing. You see the contrast. Grr-sh. When appropriate, silence is more powerful, speaks louder, and goes deeper than words. You know that. We know that. And Jesus' silence is all the more amazing because you understand by remaining silent, Jesus knows it will lead to his death. You think a lot's on the line, his life's on the line, and he remains silent. Jesus is being falsely accused, he's being lied about, he's being misunderstood. And he remains silent. And the question for you and I, this is hitting me pretty hard, is when people say things about you that aren't true, when people make assumptions about decisions you've made and don't know all that's in it, when people lie about you, literally lie, when people misunderstand you, they they, they misunderstand what you've said, what comes out of you? What came out of Jesus is silence. Jesus before Pilate. Let's go to Jesus before the crowd. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been in prison with with the insurrectionists, the, the, the revolutionaries trying to turn over Rome, who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But The chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? Stop right there. According to the Roman tribunal, the Roman authority, what verdict has Pilate just placed on the man Jesus? Guilty or innocent? What verdict has he just put on him? Innocent. How about that? But they shouted all the more, crucify him! Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. You know, in Mark's gospel, we already know this. We've been studying it for months. He's very abrupt. He doesn't give all the details. He leaves stuff out. You can read other gospel accounts and there's really more around this. And we're going to look at one of those in a little bit. But what he chooses, he is absolutely purposeful in the parts he chooses to include. I want you to see two of those purposes. Uh, don't really jump out, of it, out at us maybe, but with a little help they can. First thing I want us to note is Mark wants the reader to know. He wants the person that, 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 who he's written this gospel to, he wants them to know that what is happening is happening exactly as Jesus said it would happen. In, in other words, um, what, what Mark wants the reader to know is the prisoner who is being mocked and scourged and beaten is in control. Not the ones who are beating him, lying about him, and mocking him. Now, how do we know this? Well, let's think about where we've been. Mark chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus gathers his disciples and he says to them, we're going to Jerusalem, and he says very specifically... And I will be handed over, paradidomi is the Greek word, to the authorities. It's translated handed over or delivered. And then you get to Mark 10:33, and he says it again, specifically, we're going to Jerusalem, and I will be paradidomi, handed over to the Gentiles to suffer and die. And we come to this account of Jesus before Pilate and wouldn't you know it, we find this Greek word, we don't see it in, our, we don't see it in English, we find this Greek word three times, three times as he, as he just plants this word in here. Chapter 15, verse 1, led him away and perodidomi delivered him to Pilate, verse 10, for he was aware that the chief priest had handed him perididomi over with en- because of envy, verse fifteen, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he me He handed him over. And it's like Mark is going, you understand exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. It's happening. Jesus is in control. And what Jesus recognizes is that the hand, the hands that that hand him over, are being held by the hand. Of a sovereign God who orchestrates even this ugliness, you all. There's no, more, there's no more ugly part of the Bible than this. But God's hand rules the hands that are handing Jesus over for our good and for His good glory. Second thing I want you to note again, here's another contrast. And see, the the, the writers put the contrast in for us to go, whoa, I see that now. Notice this contrast, Barabbas. The name means Bar, son of Abba, son of the father. This is what his name is, Barabbas. Barabbas is guilty of treason. See, Barabbas was going to take Get rid, Barabbas is going to get rid of Rome's, uh, Israel's problem by getting rid of Rome. And he did it with a sword. He's already killed people. Jesus is the son of the father. Barabbas, son of the father. Jesus, son of the father. What crime has Jesus been accused of? Say it out loud. Treason. Was Jesus guilty of treason? No. Jesus guilty of any sin? No. Jesus has come to set Israel free, not from Rome, because Rome's not the problem, from their sin and bondage to sin. And he's not going to do it with a sword. He's going to do it by sacrifice. Now look at the contrast. When you look at that, you go, oh my goodness. The guilty one... Goes free through no merit of his own. You tell me, what did Barabbas do to gain his freedom? I'm being serious on this. What did he do? Men and women, he did nothing. He did nothing. But Jesus himself, the innocent one, dies for the guilt of the guilty one. There ends the gospel in this contrast. You know, we sang a few moments ago, and it just caught my attention as we're singing it. We sang, for God the just is satisfied to look on him, punish Jesus, and pardon me, me, Barabbas, murderer, Treasonist, sinner, amazing grace. Jesus before Pilate, Jesus for Barabbas. Now let's look, at Jesus before the soldiers as we move toward application for us. Look at verses 16 through 20. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, They called together the whole Roman cohort. That would be 600 soldiers. Why so many soldiers? Because it's Passover and there's millions of people in Jerusalem and they're there to keep the peace. They dressed him up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed. What they did is they put a reed in his hand, a, a staff, they're mocking him. And then one after the other, they would take the reed out of his hand and whack him on the head. Stick it back in his hand. (laughs) Kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Now, we've, we've read these stories. We know these. I'm going to go into super detail here. I've got one thing I want us to consider, and that is why the brutality? Why the brutality? You ever thought about this? And I know this is going to sound gross, but I want to see why I say it. You ever thought, you know, if Jesus, if the payment for penalty is death, understand this. I want you to know, the payment for, the payment for sin is not suffering. What is the payment for sin? Say it. What is it? It's death. It's not suffering. Why do you have to suffer like this? Well, the prophets prophesied he would, but even then, why did it have to go this way? Why such uh, brutality? Why couldn't he have been beheaded? That's what, you know, just just boom. It's over. Well, we know God has purposes in all things, don't we? And if we can't read our New Testament without recognizing there's purposefulness in suffering, that's a fact. Let me offer two thoughts on why the brutality. I'm no super scholar, but I think this is close, at least touches on it. First, in dying this way, Jesus shows us the ugliness of sin. Just the ugliness of sin. This is the true nature of sin. See, sin is, we can't even get our arms around how dirty it is and dark it is, but you understand it doesn't just destroy, it demeans, then it destroys. Sin cannot tolerate righteousness. Sin will will crush it, you see, in ways that are ugly beyond our imagination. Uh, And if we think, see, here's where I go. If we think that this level of baseness does not reside in our own hearts, then we take sin too lightly. I'm telling you, read Sermon on the Mount. If you thought an angry thought, you murdered someone. I mean, if we, think that, if we think that the soldiers are so despicable and we don't have that same sin nature, we're fooling ourselves. It's in me. It's in you. It shows us the ugliness of sin. The second purpose, I think, in submission to the cruelty, I think Jesus shows us the certainty of suffering. So the, the ugliness of sin and the certainty of suffering. And why do I say that? When Mark wrote this gospel, he was writing to Roman Christians who were suffering under Nero, literally being treated exactly like Jesus is treated. See, this is real when they read this letter, they would read it and go, that's what they did to my dad. That's what they did to my cousin. That's what they did to my son. That's what they did to my friend. And I had a guy at work, that I work with and now he's being, um, you know, he, there's a tremendous injustice. He's being accused of something that's not true. It was happening to them. So Jesus, you see, endures the suffering so that those who follow the servant king and suffer in the same way can know that Their Savior suffered like this. And just as Jesus endured and overcame, so too will I, because I'm in Christ. Even if they take my life, it's not the end, you see. Why such brutality, I think, shows us the ugliness of sin and the certainty of suffering. Y'all, again, familiar scenes. We go through this on Good Fridays every year. We remind ourselves of these things. The question I have is, how did Jesus endure it as a man? This is kind of where I've gone. Just so you know, I've thought, well, how, how did Jesus endure this as a man? Jesus is fully God and fully man. You can't take fully off either one of those. Fully God and fully man. And Philippians tells us he set aside much of his godly, God attributes to be, to be be to become a man like us. And so... So as he's going through this, men and women, he's going through it as a man, and therefore, if we get a better idea of how he endured it as a man, as a human being, then when we, you know, are, are, are you know, misspoken of or, or or suffer or or mistreated, even even treated unjustly, and when those things happen, then we too, you see, I think can endure and walk and live through that even as Christ has done it. Now, here's what I know, is I've already mentioned that Jesus, I believe, truly recognized that the hands handing him over were guided by the hand of his Father and sovereignty for the good, and God's keeping his promise by these, honestly, these ugly things that are happening. But I think there's at least two other things that Jesus knew, and it, and, and we actually get it from these, these texts, this story of His time before Pilate. And I want us to consider these two things in our own application. Flip to the right in your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 18. I want you to go to John 18. How as fully man did Jesus endure and how can we likewise? John 18. Looking at two things. First, John 18, 36. Pilate's amazed Jesus does not speak so as to defend himself. And I want you to look at verse 36, Jesus' response. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Men and women, Jesus was living for a different kingdom. Jesus was not living for this kingdom. He was not living for the kingdom of Barabbas. He was not living for the kingdom of the Jews. He was not living for the kingdom of this earth. He was living for his father's kingdom. Now slide your eyes to the right to chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Again, faced with the silence of Jesus, Pilate is exasperated. And I believe Pilate's got an overinflated view of himself and his power and his authority. It just comes out in spades when you read these accounts. Notice verse 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know? I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Men and women, Jesus was not only living for another kingdom, he was living under the authority of that kingdom. And the authority of that kingdom is where all authority on planet earth derives. The authority of the sovereign the one who has no rival, no equal, even as we sang of Christ, God the Father, the source of all authority. There is no authority that exists on the planet earth that God is not over, that is not delegated. Paul says in Romans 13, 1, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. And when we read our Bible, start in Genesis, go all the way to Revelation and you watch God establish authority that begins first with a man and a woman and then he recognizes an authority of headship in the family. It's what we believe the Bible teaches. Women don't hear me say headship and submission is bad. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's it's what your soul desires is is Jesus is the head of the church. So the man is the head of the woman. It starts with he, it starts there in the smallest unit of life. Man and woman in marriage. And then he puts parents. You understand there's authority that parents hold and that a man holds even in his home that he's accountable for to his wife and his children. And then you kind of work your way up and you go, oh my gosh, in the church. As the home, so the church. There's an eldership. There's responsibility and authority. And then, oh my gosh, so the home, so the church, so the world. There is no authority over you and me that is not derived from God, even unjust. Bad dudes, people, women, authority. God rules over them all. And Jesus, note what Jesus does. He recognizes God's authority and that God himself, this is what's amazing. God so works that even unjust, evil, and Imperfect authority God uses to bring about what? His just, good, and perfect will. That, I can hardly hold that in my head. And it's what the Bible teaches us. We're answering the question, how is it that Jesus could be bumped by such cruelty, injustice, misunderstanding? How is it that Jesus did this and didn't... I'm going to tell you what I would do. I'd spill out defensiveness. I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have called the angels. I would have called them. Enough! How did he not do it? I believe he was living for another kingdom. And he was living under that kingdom's authority. And the question that it begs is, how about you? How about me? Look, I can tell you all day long, man, I'm living for God's kingdom. Yeah, God's my authority. I can tell you all day long. You can tell me all day long, and it means nothing. Because the truth comes out when life bumps me, what spills out of me, will answer the question, am I living for the kingdom? And am I living under God's authority? I want you to close your Bibles. I'm going a little long today. But I want us to pause and consider what this means to us. You know, I mentioned to you earlier uh, in the year that this spring, Lisa and I had the opportunity to take our two girls, to Europe. I mean, as you know, this is once in a once-in-a-lifetime, trip of a lifetime, it's amazing. And we went over there to see our son, Darden, who was uh, studying abroad in Seville, Spain. Our trip took us, we went into London three days, and we, we went over to Paris for three days, then down to Seville. Um, and before going, I asked around a lot. I asked some of you, and uh, I asked my tried and trusted uh, tour guide, Susan McKinney, uh, Susan, they, 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 she'd been there with friends recently. I said, "What are the what are the not miss, can't miss, don't miss this? You know, while you're there, things." And she yeah, said, "We're in Paris, you know." And she said, "Lord, you've got to visit Saint Chapelle. Saint Chapelle means Holy Chapel. It's a it's a church. It's commissioned by King Louis the to house his Passion relics. They, they said he had the the actual thorns of were on Jesus' head. It was completed in 1248. 1248. This church is." It turns out it was a 15-minute walk from our Airbnb. It's one of the first places we went. It was March. It was rainy. It was cold, cloudy, kind of a darkish day. Now, over the years, the city has swallowed up St. Chapelle. Some of you have been there, and you know this. It's around government buildings that are soot-stained and dirty, and you've got to go through those to get into the chapel itself. In a parking lot, you know, it's not very pristine by any means as you approach it. Uh, here's a view that we had as we approached Saint Chapelle. Many of you familiar have been there. Uh, when you look at this church, it's 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 rather amazing. I mean, it's the architecture, of course, is world renowned. There are 15 large windows at Saint Chapelle. They're, they're 50 feet tall. And within those 15 windows, you all, there are 1,113 stained glass panes. So in, you, in Saint Chapelle, what you see is the story of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation in 1,113 stained glass windows within those tall windows. It is absolutely breathtaking, but it's only breathtaking when you go inside. Has this taken your breath away yet? I don't know. I mean, it's pretty amazing, the architecture, of course, but see, you'll never see the beauty of St. Chapelle standing outside and observing it and the same is true of the beauty of Jesus Christ. You see, Pilate stood outside of Jesus and saw a courageous man and was amazed. It's not enough. The crowd stood outside of Jesus and saw a weak rabbi. And then they saw a powerful prisoner that could set them free they chose the prisoner because they looked at Jesus from the outside and then the soldiers stood outside of Christ and you know what they saw a fraud and so they treated him like one you can stand outside of Jesus and you will never experience the forgiveness of your sin and guilt and shame You can stand outside of Jesus, and you will never see the beauty of the gospel which says this, it's not what you do that makes you right with God. It's what Jesus has done and what he has done alone. And when you put your trust in Jesus, you trust and you believe, oh Jesus, you lived, you died, you were buried and you rose again, and you did it for me. Only then does the beauty and amazement of gospel and good news and grace just wash over your soul. It's only when you enter St. Chapelle. That the beauty of Saint Chapelle is yours, and it's only when you enter Christ that, that the beauty of Christ is ours. You see, what, fi- what, what, what spilled out of Jesus in the. Uh, you know, these passages are ugly. Let me tell you what spilled out of Jesus in the ugliness of this his blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, Hebrews 10. But the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the spotless blood of Christ, 1 Peter. While they're beating him, what spills out of him is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What Pilate... You see, did not understand. The crowd did not see, and what the soldiers missed was that Jesus was not a Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was not a victim being beaten up. Jesus was the Savior of the world who gave his life freely because he loved the ones who were beating him. He loved them. That's why he endured it, and he loves us. But what spills out of Jesus, you all, is for those who trust Him, for those who enter and believe. The ugliness of our text is replaced by the beauty of the gospel when we are in Christ. We dare not leave this moment without answering the question that Pilate asked. Well, what do I do with Jesus? Every man, woman, and child in this room, anybody looking at me online, that's the question for you. Right now, if there's no way that everyone in this room has placed their faith in Christ, and I'm so glad you're here, and if God has spoken to you, not me, if God has awakened in you something that says, I've never trusted Jesus. Trust him now. Trust him now. How? Tell him. Tell him. Tell him you know that you're sinful and that he lived the life you couldn't and he died the death you deserved, and you believe it. You trust it. That's it. Believe him. Then you say, Well, but I don't have all the answers. Neither do I. And neither will you ever have. But if you've got enough right now to trust Jesus, trust Him, trust Him, trust Him. Believe. Change your life. Change your eternity. And for those of us in the room who've trusted Christ, are you resting in the beauty of His grace? Are you? Oftentimes I'm not. Would you sit in this moment and would you remind yourself that He did this because He loves you? And you think because you've done something bad since that He doesn't love you anymore? Are you kidding me? He died for us while we were yet sinners. And He loves us while we sin all the way to the grave. Maybe you just need to tell Him. You want to see the stained glass more fully. I want you to take a moment and do that now, then I'll dismiss us. You talk to God about how he's speaking to you. Let's stand together. I have held you way too long. I apologize. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes. On Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him. Do you know what that part of that joy was? You. You and me. For the joy set before him. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. And God bless.